All right, guys. Well, this is my third church service today. You guys remember uh, Mr. Caleb that was here uh, last week leading worship for me while I was out of town in Wichita. Uh, we just swapped uh, jobs, I guess, for, for just a weekend. So he uh, <clears throat> came here and filled in for me because I was out of town. And so this actually this morning I was over in uh, Windsor leading worship for their church. Um, just to give him a break and to uh, be able to let him dial in all the online audio and things like that. There's so much tech stuff that can be screwed up on Sunday mornings. And so he wanted to make sure all that was good. So um, glad to be here with you guys. So for the last few weeks, we've been going through each of our core values. And uh, I can still remember five years ago, me and Jeff sitting in a hotel room in the midst of uh, kind of our training through Nexus as we prepared to, to come here to Loveland and, and launch a church and, and be able to gather a body of believers and, and trying to instill a set of core values that was really just kind, of, just kind of our heartbeat of just the reason why we wanted to come here and do this. And so we've been walking through each one of these core values. And, and today, um, Jeff has kind of passed me the uh, irrational generosity because he's tired of asking you guys for money. And uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those, yeah, everybody wants to just give the church your money type of sermons. And that's not at all what we want to talk about today. So we, um, Anyway, just uh, one of those times. So tonight we're talking about irrational generosity, and there's a ton of places that we could go to chat about this in Scripture. There's over 2,400 verses in the Bible that talk about finances and generosity and money and, and just all of that type of stuff. And the, and the core issue is that we know is, is really just dealing with your heart. And, uh, you know, we could go all the way back to uh, Genesis 4 and talk about first fruits. That's the whole Cain and Abel situation of what happened there. We could go to Deuteronomy 15. It says, if any among you uh, of your brothers should be poor, you shall open your hand to him and let him lend him sufficient for his need, whatever that may be. We could go to Psalm 21. Whoever closes his ears to the cry of the poor will call himself or will himself call out and not be answered. We could go to Psalm 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. We could go to Malachi 3 and talk about the tithe, about how we're robbing God of, of the tithes and offerings, of bringing that into the storehouse. And then we could have that debate about what the storehouse is and, and all that type of stuff. And uh, we, could, we could drop down to Matthew 6 and, uh, and talk about how Jesus says, Do not lay up your, yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We could skip to the end of that book. Go to Matthew 23. Uh, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, talking about what sorrow awaits for you teachers of the law and you Pharisees. You carefully tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. We just sang about that, of just seek justice, love mercy, just that, that whole concept. You should tithe, yes, but you should not neglect the more important things. We could go to 1 John 3. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother and sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? We could go to 2 Corinthians 9. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. We could go to, you know, drop the trump card and go to John 3.16, you know, where God so loved the world that he gave, so you should give, right? But we don't need to talk about all that right? <laughs> you guys have probably heard 
if you've been attending here for a while, you've heard a lot of messages on, on a lot of those topics. And we talk about giving almost every single Sunday. We talk about giving of your finances only a certain couple Sundays, but we talk about giving of yourself wholly to the Lord in so many different areas of your life every single week that you come here. And so this idea of irrational generosity is not just something tied to your wallet. It incorporates your entire life. But what I want to do for the rest of my time is really kind of start with why. What's the point of all this? What's the point of being generous? Why give money? Why give up our time and serve? Why be hospitable? Why be generous? Before we get into any details about how much we give or what we give or where we give it, let's just take a step back and just start with why. To be honest, it's fairly simple. Not simplistic, but, but pretty straightforward and simple. kind of goes like this. See, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Psalms say that the earth is the Lord and everything in it. Colossians 1 tells us that in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is the crown. And as the crown jewel of this whole creation, God places in the garden, in the center of the garden, two creatures that were made in his own image. Our command was simple, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to rule over every living thing. But mankind would eventually try to find our way <clears throat> into believing that maybe God was holding out on us, that maybe there was something more. And so you see this early on in the garden, and it's still at play very much today, but you see this fall. How easy it was for the deceiver to make the first couple of uh, the first couple feel dissatisfied, discontent with the way things were in this perfect utopia of Eden. Tempted with the promise that they could be like God, the Scripture says, sin entered the world, and this deception, the sin, separation from God, would echo through millennia, leaving us with no way of saving ourselves and reconnecting with our Creator, and they were eventually cast out of the garden. But God had a plan that would weave through the pages of their history, masterfully foreshadowing the coming of the one through whom all things would be made right again. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has ever been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, but the darkness didn't recognize it. The light shines through the darkness, but the darkness didn't even notice, and he came to that which was his own, <coughs> but his own did not receive him. Even in his own land and among his own people, he wasn't wanted. Jesus came in the brand of his own name, wearing swaddling clothes, love, mercy, and a manger. Three wise men discovered him, yet they had no idea they were leading the world to worship him. He told the angels to kind of hold it down, decided he was going down to a small town called Bethlehem to grow and consume the stomach of a virgin whose womb would birth a man that would save the earth, a man who would give me my worth, a man who would do more in three years than most of us will ever do in 30 and to all who believed him, 
to those who accept him, to those who believe he was how he claimed and would do what he said, he gave the right to become children of God. And the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. The word became human and lived here on earth among us. That word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood to take on the life that would be so similar to our own. He said, I came to seek and save that which was lost, namely those who might be far off. And the climax of this story is that Jesus Christ would lay down his life to reconcile us back to himself, to make right again what once in the, was in the garden. An unhindered dependence on the Father. And he sends us out, even now, to make known that the promise that he has a desire that all people everywhere would come to know him. That if, and we read this earlier, if you guys are going through the the reading plan that we're going through in in August, uh, Jeff led us through our staff meeting on Tuesday. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. And for it is by your, <clears throat> for it is with your heart that you believe and you're justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And for everyone, skipping down to verse 13, says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But there's a mission that is kind of given to the church. <clears throat> it's been often said that the, the church of God doesn't have a mission but rather the mission of God has a church. The, the church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. So he is, is reaching to other people and meeting needs through what you see around you, through the, through the people here, through the church that's collected together. We have a job to do. Verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear with someone <clears throat> without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? The last words of our risen Savior before he ascended into heaven kind of reverberates this, this whole rescue mission that was given to the church. Uh, Matthew 18 or Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you, all that I have given you, all the commands that I've given you. Oh, getting a phone call. Turn your, turn your iPad on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Do not disturb. That's funny. My apologies. Um, That was anticlimactic. But teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always to the very end of the age. We have work to do as a church together, collectively, to reach into the darkness, to continue the mission that he was initially on, not to be served, but to serve is what Jesus said he came for the purpose of. To seek and save the lost is what he said that he came to. This right here is the why. Behind anything else. When we talk about any type of core value, any type of church activity, this is always the reason why. It's the mission. This is the reason behind everything we do. This is the reason behind Revive and all God-honoring churches everywhere. We have work to do. But I think it might be a little unclear to say that we have work to do. 
because uh, that collective we can be very uh, easily confusing as, you know, the church has work to do. And by the church, we mean the pastors have work to do, right? We did a, we did a little exercise one time in our, uh, our, our leadership team meeting where we kind of reevaluated our mission statement. Our mission statement is helping people far from God come to life in Christ. And I asked this simple question to some of our leaders. I said, who does the helping? And it, it was almost kind of a comical thing. I was like, well, you guys do. Like, <laughs> you're the pastors, right? That's, that's your job. <laughs> you're supposed to be doing that. But um, it's, it's one of those things that we understand that when you, when you even go back to those verses that Jesus talks about, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, therefore go. He's not just telling his 12 disciples that. He's telling several dozen or maybe even hundreds of people that have started to follow him at that point saying go and make disciples <clears throat> teaching them to obey all everything that i has commanded you there is no designation in scripture to just church leaders and pastors following the great commission we are all a part of this and we ought to be our hearts should be overflowing with a joy and gratitude for everything that the father has lavished on us a generosity that tries desperately to give back something to the one who gave us everything, right? Yet there's that age-old struggle between fear and faith. A lot of the songs that we kind of sang about that really kind of went through that, that idea of wrestling with our fear. Do we trust God to do what he said he's going to do? Do we trust God in all these things? Do we believe that God is who he says he is, has done what he claims to have done, will do what he say he's go says he's going to do in the future? So in short, it's just that question, like, do you trust him? This has nothing to do with generosity even at this point, but it's just, it's just a simple question. When we talk about the creation and the fall and the rescue and the mission moving back to in our lives do you want to be a part of that are you already a part of that and if so there should be no question are you putting your trust in the things of men or are you setting your mind on things above if you are in christ you are being transformed the bible says by the renewing of your mind your worldview should be changing as you grow in Christ. The early chapters of the book of Acts, and you guys can turn in your phones here if you want to, <laughs> Acts chapter two. The early chapters of the book of Acts give us a model of, which, of what Christ-centered community looks like. <laughs> Jesus said that your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. People will know you follow me by the love you have, not just for the outsiders, but within the love that you have for one another, how you interact with each other. And there's so many things, especially in our world today, that can divide us over just simple issues, mask, no mask. That's dividing the church in so many ways right now. And it's just this simple outside influence that our, our enemy is using. And that, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many dozens of issues that we just get so caught up in that are outside of where God has really given us a mission to go. But this is the life, this Christ-centered community. Acts chapter 2, we get a quick glimpse of, uh, of what it looked like, starting in verse 44. 
All the believers met together in one place. This is after Jesus ascended into heaven, after the Holy Spirit has kind of come, and you have that day of Pentecost where all the, the disciples and, and several other people were like speaking in different language, proclaiming the message of Christ. Coming out of all that, God added 3,000 to their number that day, coming out of that. So this is not just a, a couple, four, five, six people. This is like 3,000 people or more. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. It was the love that they had for one another, how they took care of one another, how they celebrated together, and God just kept adding to their number. They just kept growing because of the love they had was attractive to other people. That's the kind of love and generosity that doesn't make sense to those outside that community. Our world doesn't think like that. Let me, let me tell you a little story and, and maybe prove it a little bit to you. There's a couple, couple summers ago, I was up at a horse tooth reservoir with my family. And we were on the east side, kind of in a little parking lot right there, you know, where you pay a couple bucks and you get a little ticket and you go walk down to the water or whatever. You guys been to horse tooth? It's gorgeous, one of the most gorgeous places up here in Northern Colorado, right? I think. Um, anyway. So I have, like, my son is probably three years old. We get out of the van, and I'm holding, the, I'm holding his hand, and we're walking over to the little, like, station where you, like, put your card in and buy the little ticket. And some gal walks up to me. She's probably late 20s, maybe early 30s, probably my age, give or take. And she comes up to me with a card, and she's like, oh, do, are you going to buy a card? And I was like, oh, yeah, thank you so much. And she's like, oh, well, it's $7. I was like, for real? <laughs> like, like, she walks up to me, like, with a card in her hand, outstretched. She's like, oh, it's $7. I was like, oh, well, I don't have any cash. I was going to use my card to, to go buy a ticket. And she's like, oh. And this is what she said. I'm not really in a generous mood. And walks away to her car and drives away, leaving me holding my three-year-old's hand and just, like, disbelief, like, utter disbelief and just, like, wow. Like, this is, you couldn't, seven bucks. Wow. Way to go, Noko. I'm just killing it. That, that's quite the opposite of an irrational generosity. But let me show you, let me tell you another story of a way in which that me and my family were blessed unimaginably. Early in our marriage, my wife and I moved into a, a one-bedroom apartment, 700-square-foot apartment in Littleton. It was fun most, most of the time. <laughs> but uh, when you get mad at each other in a 700-square apartment, like, there's nowhere to go. Like, you can't, you can't go anywhere, <laughs> especially if it's in the wintertime and you don't want to go outside. Uh, but a 700-square apartment. But a couple years in... We were uh, hoping to move closer to where we were. So we worked at a, we both were on staff at a church down in Highlands Ranch, and that was, you know, not, not too far of a commute, but we were hoping to be a little bit closer down there. Um, and uh, my wife, knowing we could probably never afford it, my wife began praying for someone to give us their home. Okay. You, you do you. Like, I, that's more faith than what I have. And so I was like, all right, like, 
that's not going to happen. But it wasn't like a thousand percent, like totally outrageous because there were several stories that we had kind of heard of, of people in Highlands Ranch where, you know, they either work uh, in other countries abroad or they work in different states and they kind of have multiple houses and several of them went to our church and all these different stories. But she was praying for somebody to give us their home, which obviously she was just nuts, right? To my utter disbelief, she received a call from her dad, who was our pastor at the time, saying that a lady in our church had a home that was sitting empty and she wanted it to be used for ministry. And he had suggested that she let us live there. This wasn't just any home either. I think I have a, um, I have a picture of it up here. It was huge. Like the upper level was probably the same square footage as our apartment or more. Actually, probably the master suite in that, that house was probably the same square footage as our 700-square-foot apartment. There was no way that we were going to be able to afford the, the rent to be able to live in, in a place like that. So she said, this gal said, I will let you live in this house for the same amount of rent that you're paying to live in your 700-square-foot apartment, but you can live down here in, in Highlands Ranch. And we were just like... That's, that was a generosity that we couldn't imagine. She was there on the day when she helped us move, to, move in, when we were moving into that house. And we're standing in the driveway, and she tells me this. I feel like God is calling me to just let you guys live here for free. Who might argue with God? I mean, <laughs> she's just going to let you live there for free. And she did. Totally free. No rent no utilities. She wanted us to use the house for ministry. That was it. And, she, and so we did. And we killed ourselves doing so many different things there. It was amazing. For two years, we were a little reserved on uh, who we might share that type of information with. Uh, obviously. <laughs> but one time I remember my wife was sharing that uh, with somebody in our home and um, her response was obviously like, wow, like that's amazing. And then she kind of processed out loud, um, not really to us, but she kind of said like, man, what I could do without two years of mortgage, like, and I just, the, just the question kind of rolled in my head. I didn't blurt this out because that probably would have been rude. It was like, what would you do? What, what would you do? If you had been blessed with a home where you could live free for two years, what would that do to your heart? How would you be generous? Would you pay it forward? Or would you just sit on it and put your money in savings in the things of this world? We had been able to uh, give in a way that we'd never been able to match since. Of, of the percentage that we gave to our church, we'd, you know, I mean, we're super young in like ministry, not making a lot of money, but we, have, we had the opportunity to write really large checks to ministries that were struggling through all sorts of different stuff. And it was just one of those opportunities where it was just, you were blessed to be a blessing. And oftentimes we, we kind of forget about what that looks like. Whether someone gives you a home or not, even as you sit here right now, you have been blessed to be a blessing to others. But our adversary wants you to believe differently. 
You see, one fundamental concept in the entire scriptures, the entire Bible, is this one escapable, is that we are inescapably dependent on God. The Bible says that he even gives us the breath that we breathe. So we, oftentimes we just feel that entitlement of, oh, well, it's my stuff, it's my money, it's my time, it's my whatever, it's my life. No, you have been given every single breath that you take from the Lord. That God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The very air we breathe is a gift from God, and our delusion is that we think we do own everything on our own, or we do things on our own. But from Genesis to Revelation, you see this lie kind of take place throughout Scripture. From creation, the creation account where God provides food and enjoyable things for, like trees for, for just the people to look at, for, for Adam and Eve to look at, not even for any other purpose. But God gave every good thing to Adam and Eve to enjoy and be in charge. But what happened when the serpent came and deceived them was based on a fundamental lie that God is somehow holding out on you. It's the same temptation and fear that holds us captive today, that we sit here, and I could teach you about all the different things of what Scripture says on, on what it means to tithe and where to give that money and all that type of stuff and the mission that you can buy into, but we, we sit in that same lie that God is still holding out of us. It's that issue between fear and faith. Like, do you believe that he is going to take care of you regardless of what your bank account says? Or are you just going to live in that fear and that deception of, of what the evil one just started back in the garden? The Israelites were freed from Egypt by epic miracles, like biblical proportion miracles. Like this is like that type of a story. Yet they begin to complain about how God is, isn't giving them what they want, the type of food that they want. They want to eat meat, not just like the manna and, and quail and stuff like that that kind of came down. But there's a story in Exodus 16 where God would provide that manna and quail for them, and they would go out and gather what they needed only for that day. Because if they tried to save it and they tried to hold on to it and they tried not to trust God for the following day to meet their needs that following day, there would be like maggot. The, the text, the scripture actually says there was maggots and it would start to smell bad. Like you're not going to eat that, right? But they would go out the next morning and there would be their food again. And they would go out the next morning and God would provide for them again. But they still struggled with this like, oh, like here it is now. Like what if... God doesn't provide. We need to gather up more for tomorrow. And they couldn't even see a day out in front of them. Later in the scriptures, the Israelites would desire to have a king. Uh, and God would eventually grant their request. Uh, God would tell them that, that, that God was supposed to be their king, but God allowed them to have a king of their own, a human king. And he let them see what it would be like to provide for themselves because they wanted to be like other nations. And other nations had a king. And life doesn't really go well for them after that. The kingdom would eventually get divided and they would be conquered by multiple different countries that would come in and, and do these different things. But there were some good times. But overall, that's what would happen because we under, they were under the delusion that we know how to provide for ourselves. God doesn't know better. Fast forward to the New Testament, Luke chapter 4. The deceiver is doing the exact same thing, where Jesus is meeting with the devil after he had been led into the desert and fasted for 40 days. Jesus, or the devil, looks at Jesus and says, look at this stone, turn it into bread. I know you're hungry, provide for yourself. But what does Jesus say? Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds, proceeds from the mouth of God. This is our inescapable dependence on our maker. 
But more than that, we look at the teachings of Jesus and of the apostles, and we quickly, quickly realize that the Son of Man came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace, not by anything that we could ever do. We're not saved by works. But God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Our enemy is desperate to keep us under the delusion that we can provide and sustain ourselves. Again, it's faith versus fear. Do you believe that God will provide for you? Truly? As you sit here, maybe a lot of you are, are, are professing to be Christians Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not there yet, and that's totally okay. But as we sit here, and if you profess to be a follower of Christ, and this is me too, do you believe that God will provide for you in whatever area of your life, whether that's in your money, in your parenting, in your job search? Will God provide? Our American culture is so steeped in the pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make it happen, take care of number one, do what feels good, your truth, my truth, whatever truth, take what you can, worldview, that even the slightest glimpse of faith in the unseen eternal one and our obedience to him seems a little more than ridiculous to those around us. But the half-hearted, maybe I'll attend church a couple times a month, maybe drop a few dollars in the offering plate, um, doesn't quite cut it either. It's nowhere near that Acts 2 Christ-centered community where they gave everything for one another and took care of one another no matter what. If anyone was in need, they were taken care of by the body of believers. Let me skip down um, to, uh, to Mark chapter 12. Where Jesus is teaching his, his disciples a little bit about giving. This is one of my favorite passages on, on giving in the scriptures, um, kind of bar none. Where Jesus sat down, uh, verse 41, Mark chapter 12. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd put their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. And Jesus makes a point to point this out to his disciples. He calls them over to him. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. We've recommended a few resources for you guys over the years um, as, as it relates to, to giving and generosity. One of them I was looking through earlier this week. It was by Andy Stanley called Fields of Gold. Just a super tiny book. It's like yay big. It's probably not even that big. It's like it's literally like this big. <clears throat> and, and it's only like 100 pages, but it was such a good reminder to be able to understand how you deal with your finances, understanding sowing and reaping and all these different ideas about fear and faith. And he says this in his book. He says, the problem with giving, and I put this right after that picture of the widow. He says, the problem with giving leftovers is that your generosity can never exceed your ability to meet your own needs first. If you prosper, there may be some leftover. It's kind of that picture of Cain and Abel, again, if you remember that story. But the minute that you face financial uncertainty, generosity takes a back seat and you focus solely on number one. 
It's, it's faith versus fear all, all over this place. The widow and Jesus put in everything that she had all at once. Now, you guys are welcome to do that. There's offering back boxes in the back. You could liquidate all your assets and just dump it in there and trust God to do what he's going to do. Just kidding. Kind of. <laughs> Uh, I think that our, our, our budgets and spending habits would look quite a bit differently if we believed all of it was a blessing from the Lord for the purpose of honoring him and helping others. Over the years, like I said, we've done a lot of, a lot of those sermon series, and that, that book, Fields of Gold by Andy Stanley, is a great book. If you want to continue to transform your mind in, in the ways of giving, that's a simple, simple book. The other one that we've done a sermon series on um, where it just talks about giving of yourself, a generosity, is Surprise the World by Michael Frost. Just a real simple book, Surprise the World. Again, probably one of, maybe Jeff doesn't like reading. Maybe that's why we do all these short little books. <laughs> but just another like little book like that. But it's just a surprise the world of like, how can you live your life in such a way that will prove to others that you love them with the love of Christ? There's another one that has shaped my, my idea on thinking, or my ideas on giving and generosity called the blessed life. And it's not one of those, um, oh, what do you call that? Providence style gospels of like name it and claim it type, type of thinking, but it's just this concept that just breaks down what is it that God gives to us and how can we give that back? It's called the blessed life by Robert Morris. Um, again, a lot of the times we don't need to uh, just preach new stuff or reveal new things. It's just kind of reminding us of what we've already been walking through and what we've already been taught. We've gone through different sermon series like this in the past. You guys can go back on our website and find old sermons that Jeff has preached uh, year after year of, of giving and generosity and all these different things. But there's so many other stories that I could tell you personally of the generosity of others in my life. There's so many stories that I could tell you just personally of how I've been able to trust God and move into faith steps that I never thought were possible. The way in which God has grown uh, our, our, just, just my faith in our family personally with how we deal with some of those things. But it's all about the mission to go and make disciples. Again, kind of going back to that Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the rescue. But there's verses that come immediately after that that say, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? We, all of us, are called to go and preach the gospel. We are all called of us to send others to go and preach the gospel to fulfill this mission. We have a job to do, a mission to take part in. And the love that we have for one another and our commitment to that mission is founded in a gratitude for what Christ has done for us. A gratitude that in turn compels us to live a life of irrational generosity. This gratitude inside of us, this mission that we are called to be a part of, calls us to be generous.
that compels us to be generous. There should be no need for any pastor to sit up in front of you to try and convince you and beg you to give and try and to make ends meet because we need to pay for a light bill. That's ridiculous. Whether we get a building or we need a building or whatever, that's not the mission of the church. The mission has been given to us by God that we are to go and make disciples and to care for one another and prove to the world that we are disciples of Christ by the love that we have for one another. And yes, that includes your time. Yes, that includes your resources. Yes, the stuff that you have is given to you to glorify God. And yes, that includes your wallet. But that's such a minuscule part of being a generous person. It's a tremendous part at the same time because that will pull against your heart or whether you follow Christ or you follow finances or you follow money. But a gratitude that compels us to be irrationally generous. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so grateful to be, uh, to be used by you, to be known by you and loved by you. But God, that you would entrust us with anything is, is beyond my, my comprehension. The fact that you would entrust a lot of us with, with finances that come in on a regular basis to, that so easily distract us from what the mission is. God, I just pray that you would instill in us and transform our hearts, transform our minds, to follow after you, to be dependent on you and you alone, and to put the deceiver, the devil, at bay with all of his lies and deceit to make us think that we should be fearful because you're holding out on us, that you're holding out on me. Help me to believe that. God, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name.